Hello, everyone. How's everybody doing? I hope you're all well. Really excited to be with you today. My name is Darian Rodriguez Heyman. I'm honored and excited to be your presenter today. Um, we're going to be looking at a topic that, uh, from my experience, is especially relevant in the midst of the current COVID uh, and coronavirus crisis. I've been working with a lot of nonprofits, in fact, lately, um, doing some work that I, I had done before. But what I'm finding as a common trend is that in the in the midst of the current crisis, uh, you know, there's a lot of things that are needed. There's going to be a huge upswell in demand on almost all nonprofit services. Uh, coming up soon if that hasn't started already. And there's some very fundamental and sometimes even ex existential concerns around fundraising. And so one of the things that's coming up a lot is this combination of a, a chronic ongoing and long-term concern that a lot of nonprofits have, which is, uh, you know, how do I get my board more engaged? And in particular, how do I get them engaged in fundraising? And at the same time, looking at uh, how do I leverage some downtime right now where we're sheltered in place, where we can't necessarily get some of the things done that we would normally do, but we want to take advantage of a little window of time to build out some helpful infrastructure so that as we move forward, as the funding needs and the, the you know impact and mission needs of our organization increase, we're best positioned to capitalize on that and to move forward. So that's ultimately what we're going to be looking at today is how to get your board more engaged in the work as a whole, creating a culture of accountability, transparency, and a clear sense of not only what's expected of each and every member, but how the pieces fit together. And then lo and behold, the old saying is that if you want money, ask for advice. If you want advice, ask for money. When you have a board that has a stronger sense of ownership, that is more connected to the work and the mission, they automatically get a lot more engaged in fundraising. And so we're going to talk about all of that and some really simple and easy to implement infrastructure that I have used with dozens of organizations um, to make this change. And let me just briefly say, uh, as I typically do before all of these programs, that uh, two things. One is that uh, if, you know, I, I like to start with the end in mind and ask what success looks like. And I just want to go out on a limb and say that if you leave this talk inspired, that's great and all, but it actually means I have not done my job. My job over the next hour is to ensure that you leave not only inspired, but inspired to action. Meaning, what can you do differently an hour from now that's going to put you in a better position to engage your board and raise more money? And so there will be a couple of concepts and strategies and philosophies included in here, but almost you know, everything that I'm going to cover is very tactical, practical tips and tools that you can put into work immediately. And that tactical, practical tips and tools is sort of my life's work. I think of it as helping people help. I've done that in a lot of different arenas. I was the former executive director of Craigslist Foundation, where I started their nonprofit boot camp. I currently am the part-time executive director at Numi Foundation, um, where you know the tips I'm going to share today are not just abstract concepts that I wrote in my book or that I talk about from a stage. They're things I've used as an executive director. So they're some of the tools that I use to help launch an emergency food relief program just over the last couple months through Numi Foundation um, to feed 4,000 high-need, hungry families here in the San Francisco Bay Area. Uh, and then I do also do some writing. I'm, I'm the editor-in-chief at Blue Avocado. I'm wrapping up a two-and-a-half-year engagement there. And I've written a couple best-selling books on nonprofit fundraising and management. 
uh, both of which you can find on Amazon and any online bookstore. A lot of what I'm going to do today is lift out some of the tips from the board engagement chapters of both books um, that are really salient and that you could put to work immediately around how to better engage your board. So let's dive in and any time that I talk about fundraising, I kind of have a rule that I don't do it uh, without sharing a story. And it's a story in brief that I think speaks to the single largest challenge, the single largest bottleneck that we face as it relates to fundraising. And that specifically is this notion that all too often, uh, nonprofits and, and leaders in the sector really approach fundraising from this tin cup perspective, this notion of, you know, the concept that you're kind of begging for alms, right? And what I have discovered uh, is, in fact, that that is really rooted in a failure of perception. And it's a failure of perception that is best illuminated through this story. And hopefully what you'll see is there's another way to look at this. And when you do, not only are you going to be much more effective and successful at fundraising, whether that's with your board or directly, whether it's through grants or social media um, or you know, direct mail even, but the point is you're gonna raise more money, you're gonna feel a lot better about it, and your donors are gonna feel a lot better about it. So the idea is there was this young man who would go on to become a renowned celebrity and philanthropist, and he, was, uh, he had actually finished his, his uh, bachelor's program, and he was in a master's program, and he was in this uh, philosophy class, big lecture hall, with about 200 master's and doctorate students. And the professor uh, of this philosophy class walked up in front of the auditorium, back when we could get 200 people together in a room, uh, and he held up this glass of water. And he said, class, is this glass half full or half empty? And, you know, it was a philosophy class full of master's and doctorate students. So no big surprise, they kind of talked in circle for the entire hour and a half long class. And lo and behold, they did not solve the age-old riddle. And this young man who had made a lot of sacrifices to put himself not only through a bachelor's program, but now a master's program, and his family had as well, this was incredibly frustrating for him. He felt like it was a huge waste of time. And so he leaves class pretty despondent and huffing and puffing, walking his way home through the streets. And he gets home and his grandmother is there waiting for him, his grandmother Gertrude. And she says what grandmas kind of always say when you get home from school, how was class today? Nah, I don't want to talk about it. He blows her off. But she presses him as grandmothers are prone to do. No, really, I want to know how was class today? Well, grandma, if you really got to know, it was incredibly frustrating. We had, uh, you know, about 200 masters and doctorate students sitting around for two full hours, uh, you know, an hour and a half long class. Uh, and all we did in this philosophy class today was just debate if the glass were half full or half empty. And as grandmother Gertrude, with all of a second grade education, mind you, without missing a beat, says, oh, well, that's easy. It all depends on whether you're pouring or drinking. Pouring or drinking. And the point is, especially as it relates to fundraising, is that when we approach fundraising from this tin cup perspective, from this begging for alms perspective, like I said, that is rooted in a failure of perception. And specifically, that failure of perception is that we all too often think of ourselves as the drinkers because we do rely on the charitable contributions of people and organizations to do our good work. But in fact, brothers and sisters, what I'm here today to share to start things out is that we are not the drinkers. We are the pourers. We are the nurturers of society. 
And fundamentally, what we as a global movement, movement with a capital M, what we all do, whether we're focused on elder care or climate change or whatever the cause may be, um, is that we are a conduit for impact. We connect people and organizations with resources to the change that they want to see in the world that they could not advance on their own. And that means that we are not the drinkers. We are the pourers. We are the nurturers. And it is critically important to remember that and to remember that it is an honor and a privilege to do this work and that when done right it's like inviting people to a party they're not always going to come and that needs to be okay but they they should be honored and excited to participate if there's alignment with their goals and if there's not then that needs to be okay too just like not coming to that party so let's get into it and like i said uh you know i always like to start with why are we here um you know, these, uh, these things are uh, really meant to be a good use of your time. And so what does success look like? And ultimately, what I'm going to share today is just, you know, here's why I think getting your board engaged in fundraising is, a, a number one, an issue that affects lots of nonprofits, but number two, a very important issue. You wouldn't be here if you didn't already get that. So I won't spend a lot of time there really where we'll be focused is more on the tips and tools. Here's how to engage your board in fundraising. So let's get into it. Um, you know, first of all, uh, more than a decade ago, there was a, port, a report that I read, which is part of what got me into uh, executive coaching with nonprofit leaders, because one of the conclusions was that uh, it was the most cost-effective way to maintain our, our leadership uh, in the sector. But ultimately, uh, you know, part of what this, set, this study shared that was really alarming that got my attention was that half of nonprofit executive directors leave not only their jobs, but the sector within five years. And the number one reason, no surprise that they do that, is that they have frustrations around fundraising and all that responsibility. But number two on the list shortly thereafter was frustrations with their boards. And what I found over the years, I've uh, been doing this work for about 20 years, is that when you put those two issues together and you look at the challenge around not just boards and not just fundraising, but actually getting your boards engaged in fundraising, it is really perplexing. I know I wrestled with that as an ED, and I know most of the EDs I know have really struggled with this. Uh, and ultimately, you know, there's been newer studies that say that 75% of Executive directors feel like their board members are not doing enough to support fundraising. And the good news is uh, that's not the board member's fault. It's our fault as nonprofit leaders, as executive directors. And it is incumbent upon us to set those board members up for success. That starts with setting clear expectations that we're not just mandating, but that they have a sense of buy-in into and ownership of but then it also includes creating some critical infrastructure and systems that set these board members up for success, that allow them to make better use of their time at meetings, that make sure that any commitments and action items are followed up on and tracked, uh, and that make sure that everyone on the board has a clear sense, not only what's expected of them, but how their work interacts and interfaces with the rest of the board. And ultimately what I've seen uh, is that there are really three kinds of different boards. Uh, oftentimes, and sometimes groups will skip this first stage, you know, you, your mom gets sick, you want to run out and start an organization to cure a particular disease, whatever it may be, you get some 
you know, bolt of inspiration and you want to run out and start a nonprofit, oh, the IRS is saying I need three board members, you know, you start asking your friends or family or whatever, um, you know, oh, you're not going to have to do anything, just sign the paperwork, right? And then lo and behold, they don't actually do anything. They're just there in name only. Most nonprofits that I see, especially grassroots nonprofits with budgets between, you know, 50K and, uh, and three to five million, they tend to fall into the, the middle bucket of having a working board, where essentially because you don't have enough resources to hire all the paid staff that you need, um, you use your board as an extension of your staff, right? And that can be helpful in the early days, but these are volunteers and there's not always perfect accountability. And in general, if it is the critical function of the organization, you should be paying people for it so that there is accountability and that you are able to manage people on a day-to-day basis. Um, and ultimately, where we want to get our board to is we want to get them to a place where, uh, you know, where they are a, a generative board, a strategic board, a board that is engaged fully in fundraising. And that means that they are not just there to rubber stamp things. They actually are engaged to help solve the problems that we don't know the answers to, which is really where you get the most value out of that board. And again, once they have that kind of engagement and they feel like it's their organization, the fundraising happens naturally. But fundamentally, when you get to this third bucket, the, the, the most critical two roles of the board are Number one, hiring and firing the executive director and setting his, his or her compensation. But number two, that's really most important, is really setting the vision and the strategy and the programs for the organization and helping to marshal the resources to execute against that. That's fundraising. So that's the kind of board we want to get to. How do we get there? And it is critical that we get there with our board in particular, even if you are the world's best fundraiser, because one of the things that folks like Case Pinkle Grace and I like to say is that the most effective kind of fundraising ask for nonprofits is a peer ask. And that sounds something like, I invite you to join me in supporting the great work of Numi Foundation. I just gave and you should too, right? So the idea is I'm not asking you to do something I haven't already done myself. Uh, And it's not I've donated because I'm the executive director or a staffer. I've donated as a board member, as a volunteer, because I believe in this organization uh, in, in spite of the crisis and everything going on out there, in spite of all the other causes out there, I am allocating and, and directing my time and my money to this organization because I believe in it. And you should too. Why don't you join me? When people ask people to join them, that is the best way to ask for money. And that's why it's so critical that our board gives and that they help with getting as well. And it's not give or get, it's give and get. We'll get to that in a little bit. So let's dive into the meat and potatoes and really start talking about some of the tips and tools. So let's, let's move forward. Um, all right, we talked about Case Sprinkle Grace a couple times already since I've got a couple uh, other fans. She's one of my mentors and sheroes, and she wrote an amazing book um, where she talks about this idea of the AAA way to getting boards engaged in fundraising. And the notion is that every board member must play a role in fundraising. That does not mean, by the way, that everyone needs to be comfortable making an ask. And one of the problems that nonprofits make when engaging their boards 
uh, or trying to rather in fundraising is they expect everybody to ask and if they don't ask it's a problem and that dead, that board member's dead weight and that is just dead wrong there are some folks that are not comfortable asking and there are some folks that will never be comfortable asking and that needs to be okay at the same time that does not mean it is not okay um, for them to have zero involvement in fundraising it does not mean that it is okay rather and the point is that fundraising is more of a process right if you think about um, you know fundraising as only being about the ask that's like saying that dating is only about the proposal for marriage it's a point of culmination but there's a lot of work that goes into it and as someone who's married I could tell you there's a lot of work that that follows right it's a process and a journey and so you know can your board at least help open up some doors make some friends for the organization and build and nurture relationships you know help to introduce some people but also help to, to nurture some of those can they help to actually make the case and recruit people uh, or maybe just steward some of your existing donors and simply say thank you for giving everybody can do that um, or are they some of the exceptional board members that are actually comfortable making the ask and being on a call or in a meeting and making an ask or supporting an ask by a staff or another board member those folks are obviously very valuable but equally as valuable as the people that can open up the right doors. So it's really a combination of wanting to have all three of these. And I would encourage you to check out Kay's book around the AAA way to fundraising success if that's something you wanna learn more about. But let me get into a couple specific tips because uh, you know, there's this notion, you know, again, building on the idea that fundraising is only about the ask and trying to combat that. One of the ways I've seen to be most effective at doing that is staging what is called a thankathon. And the idea here is that, uh, you know, helping your board recognize that fundraising is about more than just making an ask, actually generating significant fundraising results, and generating more engagement from your board and your donors all at the same time. And the simple way that a thankathon works, I know that all nonprofits out there are busy and, you know, and quite strapped, especially right around now, but everything I'm going to share is relatively simple and easy to implement tools that have huge, tremendous and immediate value and impact on the organization. So it's all about return on your investment of time and resources. And a thankathon is one of the best ways to do that because all you're really going to do is take your existing list of donors, could be a couple dozen, could be a couple hundred. Um, if it's a couple thousand, I'd probably focus on some of the top donors and make it into a call list and divide it up amongst your board. Maybe pick a day, you know, Thursday afternoon and bring in some pizza to the board or in the current climate, everyone's doing this from home, which is totally fine because it's all phone based. You give them a little script and your board members just go down that list saying, you know, hi, this is Darian. I'm one of the board members at Numi Foundation. And Tammy, I just wanted to really thank you for that $200 gift you gave last year. With your support, we were able to launch an emergency food relief program in the midst of this COVID crisis. And we're now up to serving 4,000 high need families a week with free home deliveries of fresh organic produce. We never could have done it without you. And I really just wanna thank you for your generosity and support. Have a good day, click, right? It's not, you know, there's no ask. I'm not inviting you to an event. I'm not asking you to give. I am simply saying thank you. And number one, that connects the board members to the work and to the impact, which is critical, gets them more engaged. Number two, how do you think Tammy feels after she gets that call? Very appreciated. By the way, if 
a, a donor gets a call from a board member within 48 hours of a gift, the data shows that their lifetime value to the organization goes up by 50%. So that is a great and immediate way to create loyalty. If you have that, you know, ad hoc and quick response capability, it's really, really valuable. But even if you call them a couple months later to say thank you, it is intensely powerful. And guess what? Next time we send out a newsletter or we do an annual appeal, you think Tammy's likely to give more than 200 bucks or at least likely to give again? Yeah, certainly more likely than she would have been, right? And all of a sudden, we get a $1,000 gift from Tammy and I call up that board member and say, hey, Darian, guess what? I don't know if you remember Tammy. You, she was one of the people you called, but she just increased her gift from 200 to 1,000 bucks. Thank you so much for helping us raise this critical, you know, these critical resources. And all of a sudden that board members left feeling like, Hey, maybe this fundraising thing isn't so hard after all. Right. Great, great tip and way to engage your board in fundraising. Now let's talk about the importance of storytelling because storytelling is critically important from a grant writing perspective. In my experience, I've done a lot of institutional fundraising from foundations and companies. And I know a lot of you out there are grant writers. Um, you know, what I've seen is, in a nutshell, all too often nonprofits beat their head against the wall and the juice isn't worth the squeeze with grant writing because they seem to, to find a success rate of under 5% even after spending a lot of time and energy uh, you know, identifying the right prospects and writing amazing customized proposals for each of those uh, and spending about 10 hours per prospect and getting a less than 5% success rate and the reason for that, in my experience, is I only apply for grants I've been invited to apply for. But of course, that means you need to get the call or the meeting in order to get that invitation. And there's a couple other additional pieces of intel that you'll want in that meeting. Uh, that's, uh, that's a different webinar. But what I will say is that getting them to say, oh, that sounds interesting. I'd love to learn more and tell me more about it. And I'd love to have you submit an application it all starts with having a really great elevator pitch. And it's a great elevator pitch that you should have not only for your organization as a whole, but for each and every one of what I call your fundables, meaning all of your existing programs and any big bold ideas that you and your board have talked about would love to do if someone wrote a big enough check. For each of those, you need a 30 to 45 second elevator pitch as well as the organization as a whole. And this is something that you would use at the beginning of those funder meetings to see what's of interest and what resonates and what to dive deeper into. But you should also be using these at cocktail parties when we can get back to those or in today's climate, you know, Zoom hangouts or whatever it might be. Um, and it is really, really helpful from a board development standpoint to build these with your board to help train your board on these elevator pitches for all the different fundables so that everybody out there that is representing the organization is able to do that in a consistent way that is the most compelling way possible. And the reason why it's important to kind of get these a little bit baked, they don't have to be scripted word for word, but just the overall flow of each of these really short stories, which are you know four or five sentence stories uh, each, is because almost every nonprofit that I've seen falls into the same exact trap when you ask them what they do, right? Which is they actually answer the question and say, this is what we do, but they skip an even more important question that should precede it because ultimately it's not about the what, it's about the so what. They dive right into the what 
without leading off with one or two sentences that speak to the why. And what I mean by that is if you think about your message as a pyramid, what 99% of nonprofits and mission-led social entrepreneurs will do if you bump into them at an event or at a Zoom hangout and say, oh, that's interesting, Numi Foundation or uh, you know, St. Jude's, what is that all about? Well, they'll start from the bottom of the pyramid and work their way up and, and leave it to you to reconcile how all these details fit together. And what I'm here today is to share that the most powerful way to convey a really brief and compelling elevator pitch is to start from the top of the pyramid and work your way down. Start with the big picture of here's why our organization exists. This is the problem we're here to solve. And this is in a nutshell our solution. And now that you have that context in one or two stories, let me walk you through what that actually translates to in terms of our programs, right? And so this oftentimes can sound something like, you know, you bump into someone at a cocktail party and, and you ask them what they do and they say like, oh, well, we run a homeless shelter and we provide food, uh, you know, shelter and vocational training. Okay, cool. I understand what you do. And that is completely different than something that doesn't take more than probably five or 10 additional seconds, but that's completely different than you bump into that same person and you say, what do you got, you know, what does your organization do? And they say, well, most people don't realize that about one in 10 people in San Francisco are sleeping on the streets right now. And we believe that everyone in the city uh, should have access to uh, the resources needed to fulfill their God-given potential. So we work with the most vulnerable members in our population and we help them help themselves by providing for their most basic needs around food and shelter, but also giving them uh, a hand up instead of a handout by providing them with a vocational training program to get them back in the workforce. Again, that maybe took 10 extra seconds, but much more powerful and compelling, right? And coming up with one of those elevator pitches for each of your fundables, like I said, is really helpful. And it's a pretty simple framework, right? It's about starting out with the problem and the solution. And again, this is not droning on and on. It is literally no more than one sentence for each of these. Why? Because the problem is typically something people are already familiar with and it's inherently depressing. It might be a powerful statistic like, did you know 10% of people in this city are homeless? Um, but either way, you don't need to dwell on it. Similarly, this, the ultimate vision level solution of we believe everyone should have access to the resources needed to fulfill their God-given potential, or we believe every child should be fed, educated, and clothed, or whatever that is, it's a powerful vision, but ultimately it's a little Pollyanna, it's a little pie in the sky, and so um, you, know, you want to get through that fairly briefly too, but with that one to two sentence context of problem solution, then you can get into the plan. Then you can get into the three things you're doing about it with a tiny bit of texture about each, but keep it at the top of the pyramid. Keep it super top level instead of diving into all the specifics. And then you will know if that elevator pitch is working if that person starts to ask questions. Oh, really? Tell me about that vocational training program. I'm really curious to hear about that. And if you want to include a little line about, you know, we're looking for in-kind support, volunteers and donors, that's fine too. But the point is this three or four part framework can be replicated for each of your fundables. And then you've got each of these in your back pocket. So everyone's walking around with a series of 
30, 45 second elevator pitches. Super, super helpful for engaging your board. All right, now we're gonna get into the real sort of nitty gritty and meat and potatoes and some of the tools and uh, systems that I mentioned earlier that are at the core of what it helps, uh, of what helps most to get your board engaged, to really help to identify your top priorities for recruitment, to transform board meetings and make the best use of those, and to ensure that everyone uh, on the board is crystal clear what's expected of them. The first one I wanna share is the board matrix. And this is a really, really simple tool, as are they all. And the purpose of this tool, the value and the goal of using this tool is very specifically to get your board into consensus, into lockstep around what are the three or the four things that we are recruiting for right now. Because it's one thing, you know, a couple of you have mentioned recruitment is a goal, especially to get new blood on the board so that, you know, there's some fundraisers there, right? And hopefully we can help evolve and, and uh, transform some of the existing board members, but usually recruitment is going to be a priority uh, as part of a board engagement project. And the key thing is what you don't want to do is just have your board all out there, you know, meeting with well-connected folks saying, hey, do you know anybody who's, who we should recruit for the board? And yeah, maybe they're thinking about folks who are passionate about the cause, um, but are they the right kind of people that you need right now? That is totally different than going out in the community and having your board members say things like, we're looking for board members. Do you happen to know any uh, you know, Latina lawyers with good foundation connections based in San Francisco, right? And when you get more concrete and specific like that, when you paint a picture for that well-connected person with the big Rolodex, the likelihood of them sharing a suggestion or two goes up exponentially and the likelihood of them sharing a suggestion or two that is you know, exactly what you need or at least hits on some of those important needs goes up by an order of magnitude, right? It's all about uh, being clear and the power of intention. How do you get there? The answer is this really simple tool, a board matrix. The point is, um, you know, what I will say is that all three of these tools I'm going to share right now really cannot be implemented by the staff. It, no matter how hard you try, it feels like a bait and switch and you're forcing things on the board. It has to at least be a board-led activity. So you could kind of pitch the board or one or two members most likely on why this would be valuable and give them the templates I can give or put them on the phone with me and I can set them in motion. In an ideal environment, in my experience, having a um, you know, a facilitator, some kind of industry expert that can wear the best practice hat and speak from experience around what they've seen with other organizations uh, that plays a facilitative role to really guide the board through this process is the best case environment. But sometimes nonprofits don't have access to the money to hire someone like me or the resources to find someone pro bono. Um, so sometimes it has to be board led, but don't try to, you know, force this on your board as the staff. I've seen that go sideways many times. But the point is, when it comes to the board matrix, the way it's going to work is, you know, step one is helping the board appreciate the need for, you know, we, we all agree or most of us agree that recruitment's a priority. Wouldn't it be nice if we could be really intentional about what are the three or four things that we're looking to recruit for and be in consensus around that at all points in time? Pretty obvious. People will generally agree to that. How do we get there? Well, we're going to start out with a brainstorming exercise. We're going to start out with thinking about what are all of the different characteristics that we'd like to have on the board. 
And then we're going to try to whittle it down to the must-haves, not the nice-to-haves and, oh, yeah, that could be handy, but, you know, 10 years from now, if this organization is fulfilling its potential and the board is a big part of that uh, and we are thriving and operating at, at full impact, what does that board, what must that board include? That board must include a lawyer. It must include someone who knows about nonprofit fundraising or governance. It must include um, people that understand educational philosophy since we're a school. It must include climate change experts since that's our focus. It must include people connected to foundations since we expect to get a lot of our money from there or youth because we're a youth services organization. Whatever that may be, but it's about a brainstorming experience that that focuses on the must-haves, and typically you'll wind up with about 20 of these once that's all said and done. And then you just group them into three buckets, expertise and capacity, connections and diversity. Expertise and capacity is the, the bucket that includes what are the things that we need to have or know. Expertise is generally the bulk of this bucket, different functional areas of knowledge, whether that's around nonprofit fundraising and governance, or um, you know, law, finance, you know, PR, uh, any subject matter expertise that relates to our work, et cetera. And then capacity tends to be time and money. We'd like to have one or two people who are loaded and can write big checks. We'd like to have one or two people who have a lot of time on their hands and can be you know, good for extra credit and board leadership roles. Connections, pretty self-explanatory. What kinds of connections do we need to really fulfill our potential? And then diversity, what, you know, not just ethnic and racial balance, but what does it look like for us to represent the community we serve and what perspectives are critical to have involved at the leadership level, race and ethnicity, youth, geographic, age, uh, et cetera, right? Gender balance, LGBT, what have you. And then once you have this, this template in place, it is very easy for each board member to just check the boxes under their name. In fact, ideally they would write the number one so you could just tally it up. And then you tally it up, which takes all of two minutes, um, and you realize in, in short order, pretty much immediately, where are we light? Where do we have a score of zero or one? And maybe that gives us five or six items or seven or eight items. Within those seven or eight, what are the three or the four that are most important right now? Well, we really think we need someone who's high net worth, uh, connected to foundations, and that Latino perspective representative. Great. That's a board conversation. You land on that, and now everybody knows what you're looking for. Super, super helpful. That brings me to the board member agreement. So now we are gonna go out there and recruit. What exactly are we asking people to sign up for? And what exactly is the current board committed to do, right? So the idea of a board member agreement is this is a really simple, one or two page document that lays out uh, in very plain language, what exactly am I being asked to do as a board member, right? And the point is this should be completely objective. There should be no legalese in there and there should be nothing in there that's subject to interpretation. Nothing that says I'll make a good faith effort to attend all board meetings because, hey, we had COVID, I changed jobs, I. Uh, had a health issue this year, and I made it to one board meeting all year. I thought that was pretty good. Meanwhile, as the ED, you're saying like, hey, Darian, you only made it to one board meeting this year. You know, you're dead weight, and we have a difference of opinion. None of that should be happening. It should be black and white, and it should say, I will attend 75% of all board meetings. And maybe I didn't do it this year for very good reason, and we could talk about that. But 
if it's something that's going to continue to be a problem, and I've committed that this is what the expectation is, then it leads to a much more graceful conversation around, well, maybe if this is going to be an ongoing issue, we should look at transitioning you into a different role. So that's the purpose of the board member agreement. Again, I have a template of this that I'm happy to share. Uh, it is critical that the board lead implementation, uh, potentially in partnership with a consultant uh, facilitating that role. But the point is just taking the time to pen out, you know, as a board member of the organization, we all commit to the following. And here's, you know, 12 different areas of responsibility, really taking it from a position of um, low touch, high value with two, three, five hours a month, because I'm a busy guy, how can I have a transformative impact on this organization's work? And it's, you know, we expect you to come to meetings. Uh, we expect you to make a personal donation every year. We expect you to open up five doors to potential funders a year, serve on a committee, um, et cetera, et cetera. Maybe make a site visit once a year. Whatever that is, really laying out, we want everyone on the board to attend our annual gala and to you know, buy a VIP ticket or sponsor a table. Whatever those things are, it's a, it should be a fairly short list. Again, it's gonna fit on one or two pages, but taking the time to think through what's needed and really making that a board-led conversation where people take off their personal and individual hats and they put on the organizational hat of, you know, now that thanks to the, the hard work of this board, uh, you know, the emotional way to tee this up is, Thank you so much for your leadership and your vision because of all your contributions. We are now at this inflection point where we're really poised to take our work and our impact to the next level. In order to do that, the needs on the organization and especially on its board are going to evolve. So let's talk about what the role of the board should look like moving forward. And, you know, that, in, you know, typically will lead to a graceful transition off of some of the board members who tend to be less engaged. And in my experience, instead of feeling bad about, oh, they don't appreciate me and now they don't need me anymore, those folks will feel honored and respected, recognized, and they'll write a nice check on their way out the door. That's what we're looking for here is graceful transition. In an ideal best, best practice environment, you would actually use this board member agreement on an annual basis to look back at the end of each year and say, okay, did you do all these things? And if the answer is no, again, was that a one-off because there was the COVID crisis or you changed jobs or moved, or is this going to be an ongoing issue, in which case let's transition you into our leadership council or our donor circle, right? And in a best, best case environment, not only would people be filling out the board member agreement, which is consistent, every board member would sign the same exact version and co-signed by the board chair, but that would be complemented by an annual personal development plan and annual assessment which is an online survey folks take once a year that is individualized. So this is for you personally, Tammy, what are your goals around board engagement this year? How do you want to plug into fundraising? What events do you want to sponsor? Who are some of the contacts that you think you might want to open up doors to? What kind of support do you need from us as a board, as a staff, in order to execute on that? Uh, and then, oh, as long as we have your attention and you're filling out the survey and spending 30, 45 minutes a year, how are we doing? How are you doing personally as a board member? How are we doing as a board? How are we doing as an organization? And really using that as an opportunity for reflection about what can we do better to better engage you and set you up for success? Make sure there's a form of accountability of did you achieve everything you meant to this past year and did you fulfill your responsibilities? And getting some valuable input about what we as a whole could be doing 
better moving forward. So that's the board member agreement and also briefly the personal development plan. Uh, that brings me to the consent calendar. And this is literally the most transformative tool that I've used as an executive director. And very consistently when I implement this with all my uh, clients, uh, it has a transformative impact on their organization. And in short, this is like your Matrix Kung Fu tool. Those of you that have seen the movie The Matrix might remember where Keanu Reeves, he learns Kung Fu in like five seconds, right? And the idea is, uh, to put it frankly, pardon my French, but most nonprofit board meetings suck. They're a, they're a bad use of time. And the reason why is very consistent. It is because almost always nonprofit board meetings are about 80 to 90% monologue. You spend, you know, if you look at the last agenda from your last board meeting, if you are the, the rule and not the exception, almost every item in that agenda will have the word report or update in it. And if that is the case, in short, you're doing it wrong. And that is part of the problem of why your board's not engaged and not helping with fundraising. Because ultimately, while it is critically important that we do keep our board up to date on our activities and how we're doing in our programs, our impact, our finances, et cetera, they have a fiduciary responsibility after all, but that is not the best use of our board's time when we come together as a group. The best use of our board's time when we come together as a group for the board and for the organization is to get into dialogue, is to get into problem solving and discussing things that the staff doesn't have the answers to or that it's struggling with and needs help with. And so the question is, given that we have to get all these updates out of the way and yet we want to free up, you know, 80% of our time to get into dialogue and problem solving, how do we do that? And the answer is a consent calendar. And a consent calendar is a really, really helpful three-part tool um, that includes three things. Think of it as a sandwich. The front page of this consent calendar, of this docket, which is typically combined into one standalone PDF and sent out with the agenda before the meeting. The first page is an organizational dashboard. The meat of the sandwich are the executive summaries. And then finally are the minutes. And people are used to minutes, but they tend to be more of a perfunctory tool for compliance. Nobody really looks at them at the you know, beginning of the meeting. They get approved as read without anybody peeking at them, and then you move on. And what we're basically going to do is actually build out that experience so that instead of just perfunctory, okay, approved, let's move on, we're going to spend about 10 minutes at the beginning of the meeting going through these three, three pieces of content that collectively will give your board the update it needs within no more than 10 minutes. And again, the minutes tends to be a focal point because it's something all groups are, are typically already using and, um, and accustomed to, but we're gonna reformat the minutes to be more of a management versus a compliance tool. But again, that meat of the sandwich, the executive summaries are all of the reports and updates. Anything you would have um, you know, presented in a monologue-driven environment with a PowerPoint or talking at the board with one or two clarifying questions, get rid of all of that stuff and put it in writing and condense it down to no more than two paragraphs each. So we have our finance update, our fundraising update, our gala update, our facilities update, risk management, board expansion, whatever, anything that you want the board to know, all of those FYIs, but it's not a discussion, it's more of a presentation, put it into two paragraphs max. Many of those, especially the finance and the fundraising one, 
will become recurrent and turn into templates very quickly. So they won't take you very long to create, certainly less than a you know, 30 slide PowerPoint. Um, and hand all of these things out along with the dashboard, executive summaries and the minutes uh, you know, into one consolidated PDF, hand them out in advance along with the agenda, but don't assume that anybody reads these. So that as a standing first order of business at your meetings, you would hand out this PDF or you know, on Zoom, you'd re-email it. Uh, and then you would literally sit there in silence as everybody reads this document, these, these three pieces. And you would wait to see when all the heads go up, at which point the chair will ask, okay, are there any clarifying questions or is there anything too meaty in here that needs to get lifted out and put on the proper agenda, sent to committee or staff or whatever? You know, it merits action or discussion. If it does, it doesn't belong, let's take it out. If there's some clarifying questions, no more than 20, 30 seconds, fine. We could talk through those. But otherwise, once we're done with all of that, this thing gets approved. That whole process takes no more than 10 minutes. And boom, once that approval happens, that's when your matrix Kung Fu has completed. So let me just share a little bit about what each of these look like. So the dashboard in particular is a really simple tool once you have it, but actually coming up with the template can be challenging. The idea is this is a one page heads up display that really speaks to how are we as an organization doing. The point is you're going to identify about eight to 12 key performance indicators. And those indicators should reflect not only the operational health of the organization, like finances and fundraising, but also the programmatic, the, the impact of the organization. We are all mission-led organizations. So how many beds have we filled with the homeless? How many youth have we mentored? Whatever those metrics are that document our impact, those need to be in here as well. And for each of these metrics, once, you know, step one is going to be identifying what those metrics are and perhaps putting them into different buckets like you see here. Uh, but then once you identify those, you can easily, most of the times, you'll have an annual target for those. Um, some of the times, very frequently, you won't have a quarter by quarter or month by month target, but the staff can typically be empowered to create those based on historical trends. Um, and, you know, revenue usually is not just static one twelfth per month. It usually spikes in times of year like December or what have you. That's a little different. So you can kind of take that into account. But the point is you map it out over the year. And then what you're reporting against is less about your annual target. We're at 12% a goal. Is that good or bad? I don't know. But more about reporting against that year to date target. We're at 98% of goal. Okay, great. And then, uh, you know, last period is just cut and paste from the last meeting for historic reference. And then you've got these pre-identified ranges that typically will be if we're at 95% or more of our year to date target, that's green. Somewhere over 75 will be yellow, under 75 is blinking red. And the point is, you can look at this thing and in five seconds see, oh, we're doing great, everything's green, steady as she goes, or something's blinking red, like in this case, expenses and accounts receivable. Let's talk about that, figure out what's going on, and figure out if there's a solution needed. Now, anything that's laid out in the dashboard should get fleshed out in the uh, executive summaries where you have those up to two paragraph updates. And in this case, certainly the financial update would speak to why, is, uh, why are we over budget on our expenses? Well, we raised more money than we expected, so we decided to allocate more money. 
you know, so it's still cool and healthy, but relative to the goals and the year-to-date targets we said earlier, we've blown through those. No problem, easily explainable, right? And so the dashboard tends to be the hardest one to put together, but once you have it, it should be really easy to fill. The executive summaries, like I said, just really short, no more than two paragraph summaries each. And then the minutes, let me just briefly say that I really encourage groups to reformat and highlight those so that first of all, instead of being eight or 10 pages and it's he said this and she said that, you're condensing it down to no more than two or three pages, just the really important takeaways. And there's two things in particular that you wanna highlight. Number one, any votes that got made. I like to use bold italics so they jump off the page. Number two, any commitments that were shared. Tammy said she's gonna call this guy by next Wednesday. Darian said he's going to deliver this report by next Thursday, whatever it may be. The board as a whole committed to do um, five calls each by um, the 30th, right? And Tammy's color is green. Anything she committed to is highlighted in green. Anything highlighted in red is for me. Anything purple is for the board as a whole. That means when I'm perusing this document really quickly, I can just look for my red items and the collective purple items and any bold italic votes. And that's pretty much the most important things I need to know about the minutes, especially if there's something I committed to or that we committed to that I haven't done yet. I want to make sure to do that before the meeting. So that's, those are really, you know, the consent calendar. In general, like I said, remember this idea of low touch, high value. How do you engage people in a way that has a really powerful transformative impact on the organization with a minimal amount of, of time? It is critical that the board participates in implementing all these tools, um, you know, creating those toolkits, those little elevator pitches and, and some key talking points is really helpful. This notion of personal capacity gifts, rather than saying everyone's got to give at least a thousand bucks, well, if we serve the homeless and we want to have someone who's formerly homeless on the board, that's probably going to be a big stretch for that person. And at the same time, if we have a you know, partner in a law firm, that person could write a seven-figure check without blinking an eye. So what I really like to include in the board member agreement is the requirement that everyone gives what is defined for he or her or, uh, her or him as a personal capacity gift defined as the largest gift they can comfortably make and one of their top three philanthropic investments for the year. Top five, pick a number. But the point is, you know, it is one of their top commitments. Um, and in general, just make sure that we're keeping our board connected to the work and using our time now that we can adopt the consent calendar and we don't have to do all these reports and updates, now we're freeing up time to talk about the brainstorming and the problem solving that's really getting people involved. And so with that, um, you know, let me take a couple more questions. Paula was asking about the Thankathon and saying that uh, you know, most of the people didn't answer the calls. That's typical, uh, especially in the day age of, you know, in today's age of all these cyber calls and stuff like that. Um, just leave voicemails, that's totally fine. Again, you're not making an ask, there's no pitch, it's just simply saying thank you. You can absolutely do that over voicemail, uh, and that is much better than an email, no question. Um, uh, Carice asked a question about, um, you know, specific to COVID and the fact that you're seeing that a lot of your board members, because they're so busy, are not uh, following through and they're not doing any of the calls to the donor calls that you're assigning them with. Um, and have become more hands-off, and, and how do you get them engaged? So, Carice, what I would say there is it sounds like you're basically tasking this board, and that, in general, does not work. Um, that's not the dynamic of, of boards, right? They're volunteers, and so, uh, but they're really senior leadership-level volunteers, and so rather than just saying, 
okay, Bob, I need you to do this. In an ideal environment, this is a conversation that is a strategic priority discussed and identified in a board meeting where uh, the board has a discussion around, okay, it's COVID, we can't go out there and do donor meetings. We really need to do some fundraising because we're expecting demand on our services to go up. Let's talk about what might be possible. Having an open conversation and in the context of that dialogue, Eucharist could propose, well, you know, what I think would be really great would just be doing a thankathon or making some calls to boards or doing some phone solicitations, whatever, and getting the board to weigh in and discuss that and actually getting the board to say, we agree, this is a good idea, and we commit, at pushing them a little bit and saying, okay, let's set some parameters. How many calls can each person make? Does it feel comfortable that everybody's going to make five calls or is it 10? Like pick a number and by when, by the end of the month, by the end of the week, pick a deadline. And then, like I said, that should go in the minutes. It should be highlighted as one of the deliverables that everybody agreed to. And that creates the accountability, number one, but it also creates a sense of buy-in around the tasks. So it's not just something they got assigned, right? Um, Emily asked a question about elevator pitches and how to get, uh, how to keep those top of mind. Um, you know, what I like to do, Emily, is uh, really try role-playing as one of the best ways to do this, is maybe at each board meeting, especially if you're able to implement the consent calendar, and now all of a sudden you have a lot more free time to go through exercises, to have discussions at your board meetings, you know, have each board member get a turn, and you rotate it at every meeting, and today it's Tammy's turn to pitch, uh, you know, our homeless shelter program our vocational training program, our mentorship program, you know, and you bump into someone at a party and they say, oh, I heard you guys recently launched this mentorship program. What's that all about? And let's see how she does, right? And again, ideally, she's already received those talking points for not just for that program, but for every fundable, as I called it. Um, but let's have her do it. And then let's talk about it for a couple of minutes and see what went well, what could be improved. Do we want to change the talking points? Um, and then Jamie asked sort of a related question about, you know, this notion of in the context of this pyramid-based elevator pitch, if you have multiple unrelated programs, should each board member have their own elevator pitch, uh, you know, about each program that they care most about? Uh, and the answer is, is really yes and no, Jamie. The idea is there should be one uh, consistent set of talking points that the entire organization, both staff and board and even volunteers, have access to for each of those, like I called them fundables, including your existing unrelated programs, uh, your general operating support pitch, and then also just in general, um, the ideas that the, the group has decided would be great if someone could write a big enough check, and next time you're in an elevator with Bill Gates, you wanna make sure you have that really concise and compelling elevator pitch in your back pocket. So the point is everyone should have the same talking points but ultimately, anytime someone uses those talking points, they're going to personalize it. They're going to make it their own. So they should be working from the same language, but being able to adapt it a little bit. Um, and then finally, uh, let's see, Jenny asked a question about, um, you know, give, should giving include in-kind gifts? And the answer is absolutely. Um, typically, we think of giving as time, talent, or treasure. So people give as a volunteer with their time, like board members. People give money, which is their treasure, or they give their skills. And board members typically do all three of these. But when you look at, um, you know, 
for example, in the board member agreement, every board member should hopefully open up doors to five potential supporters a year. That could include donors, that could include board members, that could include um, in-kind supporters who are donating you know, uh, their time or are donating goods like uh, laptops that we need for the office. So there's any number of ways that people could give. So in closing, I, I really wanna thank each and every one of you, not just on behalf of myself, uh, and not just on behalf of Fondant for hosting us today, but I want to thank you on behalf of the millions of people that you collectively serve. It's truly my pleasure and honor to have been with you today. I'm very much at your service moving forward, and I hope to hear from you and see if I could be helpful in some way. Thanks, everyone, and have a great day.